How's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 172. I sat down with Ellis Armistead. He is a former police sergeant and a former police detective. He's currently a legal investigator. Uh, He resides in Colorado, but he and I both happen to be in Nashville at the same time. So he was kind enough to sit down with me and have this conversation. Bit of a warning for this episode, it does have graphic content. Uh, Ellis worked on cases including the John Bonet Ramsey case, uh, the Columbine shooting, uh, Eric Harris specifically, uh, and the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, he worked with Timothy McVeigh in the appeals. So that's that's some heavy duty stuff. But Ellis also references a few other uh, grisly things. And uh, I just wanted y'all to know that before you listen. At one point in the episode, Ellis and I start talking about uh, childhood stuff um, or, you know, how kids behave these days versus back in the day. And uh, we talk about the idea of good people doing bad things. And we talk a little bit about sexual assault and that sort of thing. Um, I wanted to bring something up that I actually said to Ellis after we were done recording, and I, I want to mention it here. When I was young, um, I'd say ninth grade, this big swath of woods that uh, my friends and I would all hang out in and uh, after school. We'd go sit up on the hill in the woods and talk, my girlfriends and I, and <laughs> a lot of times we got stoned and talked about you know, life and our families and this, that, and the other. And we, you know, bitched and moaned about our parents and teachers and boyfriends or lack thereof in my case, but you know, all this stuff. And one of our friends, all of her complaints and stuff, would they seem totally normal? She definitely had a heavier personality. Like you could tell there was a lot on her mind, but you know, we talked about all sorts of things that the handful of us that would go sit up on this hill, we were all very close. Well, it wasn't until years later, years and years later as an adult, that I found out that when she would go home, uh, her stepfather would molest her and in in fact rape her. And, um, you know, I found that out later in life. And on the hill, as a kid, I never knew that about her. She kept that secret. That's a heavy-duty secret. And she kept it from, you know, the closest people in her life, her best friends. And I'm bringing that up because I think it's important, you know, when Ellis and I talk about good people doing bad things, whenever I saw her stepdad, he was nothing but nice to me. I would have had no idea. He didn't even give me, you know, the willies. He was just a a, a dad, you know? And so all I'm saying about that is good people do do bad things (laughs) and maybe they're not so good. And also maybe everybody's fighting a battle and nobody knows what that is except for the person fighting the battle. I just, I hope we can be, I don't know, more aware of the people around us that we love and care for. Um, Watch the subtle signs. If you see something or you feel something isn't quite right, um, I don't know, try and do something to help the person if you can. Or 
reach out to somebody who can. Uh, there's a lot of services out there, family services and uh, Planned Parenthood and rape crises services and school counselors. Um, if you see something or something doesn't feel right, I mean, we were young and naive and didn't know those kinds of things happened, or maybe we did and we didn't think it could happen to our friends. And um, it does happen. And there are a lot of secrets out there, and especially in families. So, I don't know, just keep that in your hat and think about it. And that's just my opinion, but I don't know, I wish we could have helped her back then. Okay. I referenced two other episodes in this episode, including Adam Shelby, episode 12. He was the guy that had been both to prison and in the military. And then the other episode I reference is episode 148, and that's with Joe Stiles, who is a bail bondsman. So if you're interested in checking those episodes out, there you go. Episodes 12 and 148. The usual stuff, social media, Hey Human Podcast. You can find my personal social media at Susan Ruthism. You can reach me, Susan, at heyhumanpodcast.com. This episode, like many of the episodes, in fact, by many, I mean all of the episodes, I have curated links and books and researchy things and movies and YouTubes and all that stuff, and I've put them all handy for you to check out on the links page there on uh, heyhumanpodcast.com. Exciting email that I got this week. Hey Human was ranked on iTunes at number 880, so it's moving up the charts. Thanks to you. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I really appreciate it. And by the way, a bunch of you rated and reviewed it this week. I appreciate that too. So if you haven't rated and reviewed Hey Human on iTunes, please do so. It's obviously doing something to help get the word out. So I really appreciate that. Uh, Amazon Portal is on the front page of HeyHumanPodcast.com. If you shop Amazon, do so through that portal and it helps support Hey Human and keep it ad-free, which I like that it's ad-free. I'm sure you do too. <laughs> okay. Um, yes, that's about it. Um, and remember, this episode has graphic content. Thank you for listening, and thank you for helping to push Hey Human up the ranks at iTunes. It's very exciting. Um, looking forward to it. Keeping on, keeping up. All right, uh, let's get into this. Here we go. Ellis Armistead, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you. I really appreciate you being here. You've flown in from Colorado. Yes. I would like to think it's just for this, but I know better. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we are in a historic room in Nashville, Tennessee, Eddie Arnold's office. Right. I, I think you mentioned that you thought it was maybe untouched since he's died, and I think you were right. <laughs> All the things that we are seeing in here. There's a lot of history in here. Wow. I mean, it's crazy. Anyway, thanks for being here. We were introduced by your little brother, Steve. Right. And he said, you've got to talk to my brother, Ellis. He's so fascinating. And he sent me your website. And you are fascinating. Boy, have you seen some stuff in your lifetime. Let's uh, go back to the beginning. What did you go to college for? I went to co college uh, from political science. Oh, okay. Interesting. At Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. You're a Tennessee Here boy. T Tennessee, yeah. 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 Oh. I was raised in Decatur, Alabama. My dad was an engineer at NASA there. 
And your mom, well, she was a nurse at Vanderbilt? At she the was a nursing administrator in the hospital in Alabama. Okay. Why did I think she was also... Well, she graduated from Vanderbilt. Oh, is that what it was? Okay. Did your dad as well? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. And my sister. <laughs> did Steve go there? No, he went to partied at the University of Alabama. That sounds more appropriate for him. <laughs> okay. He so, was on a six-year plan. Yeah. <laughs> Poli Sci, did you, at the time, did you have aspirations for going into what was to become your profession, or was it just... I had, I had no idea. Uh, it's it actually the furthest thing from my mind. So how did you end up becoming a police officer? When I was in high school, uh, my dad took me down to a pawn shop slash gun store and volunteered me to the owner to work for nothing. And uh, I think I was about 15. And the owner is a guy named Frank Wiley in Wiley Sporting Goods. And he said, okay. So my dad left pretty pleased, but what he didn't know is that Wiley slipped me money in cash. He said, I can't let you work for free. <laughs> I never ruined it for my dad. But um, when I got out of Vanderbilt, I, um, I took the LSAT. I did fairly well, enough to get into law school, probably not Vanderbilt. But my, um, I went back to, I didn't want to, working a bank my dad wanted me to and I just found it too boring and I uh, uh, went back to Decatur for a while uh, and uh, the policemen would come and go from this shop because they uh, uh, they were into guns and, and actually one of them worked there part-time a guy named Joe Anders after a few months, they convinced me, hey, you can get a job at the police department, ride a motorcycle, and uh, you'll have a good time. And I thought, well, I don't know what else I'm gonna do. So I did it as a lark, really. I think my parents were mortified. Uh, I was the first, uh, I joined the police department. I had no training. I'd shot guns before, but I'd never, I don't think I'd ever shot a pistol, maybe with my grandfather. So they hand me, you know, I get this pistol, they put me in uniform. The first night they made me drink about a half pint of moonshine whiskey up in the DUI room, which is kind of ironic, but that was an initiation. And that was back when the moonshine was made with radiators, so there was a lot of lead in it, I'm sure. Uh, the next morning after my first shift, the chief came in and said, handed me my badge and said, you're now an official son of a bitch. <laughs> that was my swearing in. I worked as a policeman for s several months before they sent me to the academy. I mean, this was a life totally foreign to me. It's the, so even before you, went I had to, no idea this went went on by fire. in uh, Decatur, Alabama, which is kind of a medium-sized Alabama city. And what year was this? Probably 1973. And uh, I, 
things went uh, after midnight in a southern small southern town like that there's a whole nother life after midnight what were some of the first things you saw on, for those first days before going out? Some of them were my parents' friends who were out slipping around. So, I, you know, uh, I was down on what they, they're called the other side of the tracks where they generally put me and uh, a lot of fights, actually quite a few shootings and murders, but they didn't take them very seriously particularly if you're a minority. You could barely get a detective to get out of bed. He'd say, we'll take it in the morning or something like that, you know. Um, Were you scared to be around all that? I mean, you're quite tall, 6'7", six, 6'8", six, I'm guessing. Is that about right? 6'7", yeah. Yeah, so your stature, I'm sure, afforded you some sort of authority. Yeah, yeah. But I don't ever remember being really scared. Uh, of the job, there are times in the job that you're on high alert. The first call I ever went on, we went up, I think it was a domestic. But I remember when I was leaving with this other officer and everything was fine. And we got just about to the fence gate and the owner turned the dog loose on us, came shooting out from the dog from the front door. And that was my kind of my initiation of what I was, uh, I was uh, up to. <laughs> you get to the police academy and graduate from there, and in Alabama. In yeah. Alabama, and do they? Do you come back then? Because now I assume if you have a college degree, you do you immediately go to detective, or no, does it take time? I, I, I came back from the um, police academy, which was then pretty f fundamental, and went back to work on the street. I was eventually promoted to sergeant. I was the youngest one. All the people I supervised were much older than I was. How did they like that? Some of them didn't, mm. but most of them I got along with, and I still see my old lieutenant. You know, it may see him tomorrow, but still there. Yeah, still kicking Much around. older than I was. <laughs> I thought he was old back then. <laughs> When you, uh, do you have any particular things from the very beginning that, that you still bring to mind? I think the first DOA I went on, it was in kind of a, what they would call a shotgun house. And the heat was on. And this African-American woman had died supposedly in her sleep but back then they didn't even autopsy cases like that and i just remember the dim light bulb in her room just a bare light bulb the heat and uh the smell did you ever get used to that smell yeah actually i did that's one of the reasons that uh i later on when I moved to Colorado, uh, I had the ability to just take a deep breath. And I got used to it and, you know, and I was kind of known for that. How long uh, were you in Alabama before you left for Colorado? About three and a half years. 
So relatively think, yeah, quickly. Quickly, they were recruiting. Lots. I was only making six thousand a year, and I remember that I thought the chief was rich because he was making twelve thousand, and this was not a. Wasn't a huge department. It was about fifty man. Was it? We. I'm not to backtrack too much because I do want to know about your your changing from Alabama to Colorado. But obviously, civil rights tensions were were at an all time high. Things were nutty, especially in the South, especially right. in Alabama. As a police officer, who came? You come from a liberal family. Your family is, to my knowledge, very. On the left side, probably. <laughs> yeah, on the left side of the lean. And uh, how was that, especially with your fellow officers? Maybe some who were not uh, um, kind to people of color. You know, back then it wasn't as polarizing mm. as it is now. Uh, we didn't talk politics. There was some racism I saw in some of them, but not all of them. I remember a dispatcher calling out one night and some African-Americans were driving down, uh, I guess it was 6th Avenue, and he had done something, and he says, there's a load of coal coming your way. So there was a little bit of that, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the officers knew my mom from the hospital in the ER, so... I, they probably cut me a little slack. Since she is in the medical profession through your that time for you, did she prepare you for Not any of the things all. you were going to see? She was horrified. Mm. The first... When I got on a motorcycle, I was once called to uh, an accident scene. It was out in the country, in the, but within the police jurisdiction. He was about eight, I think, mm. seven or eight. His grandparents lived on one side of the road, and his parents lived on the other side. And he ran across the street, and a truck hit him. Well, I was the first one there, other than, you know, was the first officer there. And I pulled up, and it was just real quiet. And I could hear somebody crying up on the porch. It was a, quite a ways away from the highway and I got off my motorcycle and I everyone kind of looked at me and I saw there was obviously a body covered up on the highway and I guess being foolish or something I went up and pulled the seat back and he'd lost his head and everyone was looking at me and they just turned their their eyes up into the yard and that's where his head was i went back to my parents after that was over that evening and i didn't have any place to go really i wasn't living at home but i just go back and they didn't want to hear about it and so I went down to a local steakhouse and just sat it out. How do you, I mean, is there ever any recovering from that? Not totally, no. With the first responders especially, you think about, the, I, nowadays, they're, 
the likelihood of them staying in their positions are shorter and shorter because it's so right. traumatic. And now we know a lot more about PTSD and such. Um, well, I, you know, I'll be honest with you, I've been diagnosed with it. And, but back then, and even into the 80s, there was no, if, if you were in a shooting or something, um, which I was a couple of times, they never, um, there was no support from the city. In fact, they saw if you were seeing somebody, it was considered a liability because if the city ever got sued back then and it came out that you were see, going to a therapist or something, uh, that was considered a huge liability, whether it was or legally, I, I don't know, but that was the rationale. I imagine that's why so many uh, police, first responders, you know, police, fire, fire people, even even emergency room doctors have such high instances of alcohol, drug, and suicide. suicide. A lot of suicide. I've known many of all those, not many. A couple of doctors, um, several policemen. Back then, we really didn't have EMS. It was just two clowns in a station wagon or a van with an oxygen tank. They didn't know what to do. Yeah. They maybe had basic first aid, but I even doubt that. Yeah, wow. What presented itself in Colorado that was more appealing? Well, the city of Lakewood, which is a large suburb of Denver, uh, was recruiting across the, comp the country, and uh, it tripled my income. <laughs> I did have an aunt and uncle living out there, so I knew somebody. So I, I went to the police department. My first day, I remember my dad and I pulled the trailer with my few belongings out there. And we got an apartment and he flew back home. And so the first day of work, I go and eat breakfast in IHOP. I walk into the police station and I introduce myself to the desk officer. And he says, uh, where's your white sheet? referring to the Klan. He was from New York, and he may listen to this and remember making that statement. But it was a totally different. The chief had come from Los Angeles. A lot of the officers were from Los Angeles, and the class I was in, a lot of them came from New York City because it was there was a downturn in the New York economy, and they laid a bunch of policemen off. I remember working with one policeman who'd never been in a patrol car before. He just worked high rises in New York City. So he, this is the whole thing was totally foreign to him, as was his experiences to me. Did you go in as a sergeant? No, no, I went in. As a, they call it a lateral transfer. I went in as a, in patrol. Wait, what does that mean? If you were a sergeant in Alabama, is it? Well, you. You don't keep the rank. You just go in, essentially start. It's not start, like the military. It's, no, you essentially start fresh. Um, you don't have to go to an academy. To have, I think I had three days of training on the law and that kind of stuff. But then I rode along with an officer for a while, a week or so, and they put me out on my own. What were the big differences between the Alabama police force and this Colorado police force? Probably the technology, um, the support. Um, 
And this would they have had been a so crime lab, which yeah. I there was nothing like that. And CSI Decatur stuff, at the time. Yeah, yeah. This is around seventy-seven-ish. Yeah, probably. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. Seventy-seven or seventy. Yeah, probably seventy-seven. Just the equipment was better. They provided my uniforms. They gave me cleaning allowance. Uh, to me, it was a lush lifestyle. It was a lot more structured than what I was. Alabama back in my day was tend to be a little wild. The policeman. Sometimes there's a thin line between the policeman and the people they arrest. And that's true in every city, not just Alabama. Mm -hmm. I believe that, yeah. And I'm a supporter of the police. Well, of course, but human beings are human that's, beings. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a trap that... And absolute power, you know, when you give somebody that kind of power, it, depending on a person's personality, I mean, your personality is going to dictate how you are. So if you're a chill person and you get drunk, for example, you'll be a real chill, drunk, drunk person. But if you have an underlying anger issue and you get drunk, the anger comes out. So put a uniform on someone. Entirely, entirely accurate. Yeah. I mean, I was fortunate and you can probably tell I, my personality, at least outwardly, is fairly laid back. And I think I worked, has, has worked for 40 years uh, or more now to my advantage, both in the, when I worked in law enforcement and in the private sector. It takes a lot to get me excited. <laughs> As you're um, moving up through the ranks in Colorado, you you had a lot of stuff going on. You worked for the district attorney? Well, what, what happened is I was in patrol for a relatively short time, and I was going to graduate school. I was another thing to, to the old law enforcement grant. The department paid for my grad, graduate school. And the captain from uh, detectives called me one night at home and asked me if I was still in school. I said, yeah. He said, uh, would you be interested in working homicide? And I said, uh, I guess. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, show up Monday morning. So I show up Monday morning and I go up to the sergeant and he, the captain had uh, neglected to tell the homicide sergeant I was coming. So it was a little bit awkward, but then they gave me a desk, and uh, away I went. Were you, did you have trepidation for that, considering how, I mean, homicide means people who have died? No, I, well, I didn't have long to think about it. I think he called me on a Saturday night, or even... Sunday night, I don't know. I didn't have long, so I'd never really thought it through, and then I just barged into it. I had an excellent partner who uh, was older than I am, who taught me a lot. I mean, that's how I learned. Initially, I would was going out on primarily suicides. They use that as kind of a training exercise, because you're, you're supposed to treat a suicide like a homicide until you prove it prove it's not. Did you ever come upon suicides where it turned out to be a homicide that you knew? No. No. You mean you hear there's a lot of urban legend about that. You know. 
Was there any case uh, in those first few years as a detective that stand out to you? One of the first suicides I uh, went on by myself, I um, walked into the house and I stepped on this guy's teeth. I'm going, this is not, this is special, you know. And the patrolman directed me to the bathroom and this guy had literally blown his head off with a high-powered rifle in his mouth. He left a note on my kitchen table. He said, my last request, a closed casket, please. I'm going, well, I think we can honor that. But mm -hmm. uh, I had to call my partner back at the office and say, I needed to come out and walk. You know, I just needed somebody besides me at age 26 or 27, whatever it was, who... Uh, I just needed someone that knew more than I did, even though it was obviously a suicide. You know? Do you have to compartmentalize something like that when you look? I've seen people who have passed away before. I've seen dead bodies, and they don't, you know that's the person, but it's also not the person. In order to deal with that stuff, did you have to, in a way, dehuman not dehumanize, but dehumanize? Do you know well, in a way, you do dehumanize it because you learn to look at the body as a piece of evidence. They're no longer there. So your focus and that of the crime lab, when they, because they would come out on those two, mentally you treated the body like a piece of evidence. Does that help at all? You know, as it turns out, I didn't have problems until I was 40 years old. And I started having nightmares. Of back then. Back then, you. Yeah. It took that long for your brain to say, you know. I was that kind of a cow. I mean, I I prided myself on being being able to walk into any scene, even when other people were out throwing up or something, and it never bothered. It didn't bother me until I was forty, and it bothered me. I'd go home and go to sleep. What my wife think? would make me take my, my ex-wife would make me take my shoes off because back then they would have blood on them sometimes, you know, but I'd go to sleep a full night. What do you think made the switch in you? Switch what? Where it didn't bother you and then it did. That you just shoved it all down for so long and did something, did some particular case trigger that or just... When I was up in, I worked after I left the police department, I got promoted to sergeant there in Lakewood. They put me on midnights, and I just couldn't, I just couldn't stand it. And uh, and that's a natural progression. If you're promoted and you're in the detective division, you go back to the street as a supervisor. And I lasted maybe a year or less, and I got offered a job as the chief investigator in the a large judicial district essentially covered northwest Colorado and that sounds uh, like a big job well it's it's not real populated I mean we're talking Steamboat Springs Craig Dinosaur Winter Park I we had three offices that are about 100 miles apart and this is private sector then no oh it's not so when I was with the district attorney oh I see I was a still a law, a law law enforcement officer and I did mostly homicides because a lot of the departments were small like two-man departments out in these country and they 
I, I had to go on all of them. They, they wouldn't handle them. Was it generally not too difficult to figure out who done it, considering most people are murdered by people they know or not? Yeah, you know, that's generally true. I would guess 75 to 80 percent of the cases I work weren't real difficult. I'll be honest with you. I mean, everyone says, oh, well, you know, you did all this. And well, it doesn't take much to when some husband, after killing his wife, is crying in front of your desk. Uh, what have I done? And I'm going, dude, you're going away. <laughs> Which to me at that age was kind of fun. What turned me into what finally made me leave law enforcement was I was called to a scene out on a country road in Colorado and there was a big, tra uh, looked like a trash dump. But what it was is some guy had killed a husband and wife and their 18 month old. And uh, I remember being in the morgue when we were doing the autopsies. And uh, for some reason, I, I before or after the autopsy, I picked up this 18-month-old, and he, hopefully after, but back then, uh, he had a contact gunshot wound to the back of his head. And uh, I said, then it's time for me to leave. Was the perpetrator caught? Oh, yeah. Within a day. He was a friend of the family. A weirdo. But friend of the family. Married. No kids. So he, I still see his picture in the prison website, you know. He's still incarcerated. Yep. Yeah. Did you start to... So the 70s was when... The idea of profiling was just starting to, I mean, late 70s, early 80s, just yeah, starting to kind of pick up the idea of it. But were you, as you were sitting at your desk and seeing case after case, human beings are extraordinary in their uh, snowflakeness, how different they are, but they're really not as far as what drives, what drives us. That's relatively simple. So were you being able to, did you start to see profiles? And yeah, I mean, profiling is nothing new. It became more formalized, but we all profile. If you go down on Broadway here at 2 a.m., you're probably gonna look at some dude and say, uh, I don't think I wanna be around him, or you're profiling. Um, an example I remember uh, is when the profiling, when it became a an issue, I mean, I had to be honest that I profiled. If I was on patrol and saw an American, African American walking through the country club district of Denver with a TV on his shoulder, uh, did he have to have the TV? Would it have just been? I probably wouldn't even had to have the TV. He was just out of place. As much so as a, a rich old lady covered in diamonds down in the poor part of town, she's out of place. That, that's the human nature. I mean, and I know there's been a lot of uh, 
controversy about it and I understand it I understand it can be abused but it also has its place in good law enforcement you can't help it just that's it's the intuitive part of the job and in times it does get abused yeah. I think I think probably more now than even maybe or maybe not I don't know human uh, I think been around for a long you know it's <laughs> I've been been quite a while since I've been in law enforcement but I think the training is now uh, to be more sensitive hmm. uh, and I think most of them are there's always exceptions you know yeah I think about that because as you said we profile just on a daily basis which is true in dating or when we're looking for babysitters or you know whatever it is or which grocery store you want to shop at because right. you're like the clerks or not right. um, but anymore I think humanity firstly we're also blended anyway but it, it's across the board it doesn't to, to me I have found that it doesn't matter what color people are or religion or whatever people are continually surprising me as far as the depths of depravity and uh, cruelness that people are capable of yeah I mean as far as uh, domestic terrorism, I think we've pretty much nailed it on the, the you know, young white guy. <laughs> right. I mean, that, be a yeah, there's an example or the guy that went into Walmart in, I think, Missouri a couple of weeks ago after the El Paso shooting. And he was dressed in, I think, a helmet and uh, flag jacket. Flag jacket and had an AK-47. Well, people immediately profiled him that's good profiling <laughs> yeah. and then he got arrested he said he was testing his second amendment that was the second one not the first one that went in and shot people you're talking about the guy no that, this guy didn't shoot anybody yeah, this is the guy the next week yeah yeah he yeah. walked in to test the uh yeah. second amendment and he was not lucky. the brightest bulb on the tree no, uh, and lucky. also he's full of shit yeah he's lucky he didn't get shot or we're probably unlucky that he didn't where did you decide that was the final straw? You saw the family was, and you went, nope. Well, it took a few months. And I had to finish out that case. The hardest part of those cases for me was the families that were left behind. I forget where this kid's grandparents were, but I, they would call me just about every day crying what, what did the man say when you finally arrested him? His reason? You know, he didn't say anything initially, but after he was offered a plea in lieu of the death penalty, part of the plea agreement was he had to tell me all the details. And I found that pretty difficult interview. Was he honest with you? Yeah. I mean, was he I, a sociopath? I'm not sure I'm able to really diagnose that, but I would guess, you know. And what was his reasoning? Do you recall? You know, he couldn't really give a reason. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, he, he was a, he lived in a upper income neighborhood in Denver. I forget what is, he knew these people, friends from some, I forget what the connection was. Yeah, I remember thinking 
he, he even after an hour or two of detailing everything he'd done, I couldn't couldn't really figure out what triggered it. Maybe somebody else could, you know. But um, what's your? I remember his attorney sitting by him, and he just had his head in his hands. The attorney did mm-hmm. listening to it. It's got to be insane trying to be a defense attorney with people like that. Oh, because absolutely, yeah. Did he have remorse? I don't think so. I, I, you know, that would probably be a big thing in his diagnosis. You know, if you sure. go into the uh, DSM five now or something. Uh, DSM five. What is that? It's a psychiatric where they make diagnoses that gives them a number of different levels of schizophrenia and mm-hmm. so forth. Uh, I really didn't try, uh, to be honest with you, I didn't try to think too hard about that. I just didn't want to because it didn't matter to me. I mean, if it was a motive, maybe, but most of them, there wasn't a real motive. They just did it, you know, and that maybe it was in their mind, yeah. Yeah, in your experience that people just decide one day I'm going to kill this person and then they just do it. For whatever, I mean, I'm sure there's something wrong with them, but I didn't spend a lot of time trying to figure it out. Yeah, I'm curious. We, as we talked about, the rate of suicide is quite high with first responders and doctors and things. Do you think there's any correlation with seeing people who are victims of suicide and thinking that's you know, you start putting yourself in the that, that level, yeah. like a weird level of empathy. <clears throat> the only time I really empathized, I guess, sympathized was every now and then I would get an old elderly couple where the man would shoot the wife and then shoot himself. But if you talk to the family, uh, they were in poor health, poor financial condition. They're in their eighties. I remember one, they were just lying in bed and he just reached over and shot her in the side of the head and shot himself. And they weren't violent people, they no criminal history, no psychiatric history that I remember. It was just kind of a way out of this world, which I understand the dynamic of that. Mm-hmm. The others, I, if people knew who they were gonna leave, what it was gonna do to the people they leave behind. Uh, they generally wouldn't do it because it's more devastating than murder. And I would always tell the families, you can't impose rational thinking on an irrational act because the survivors, while grieving, are still generally rational. The odds are the person uh, at the moment he pulled the trigger or hung himself or whatever he did, uh, was not thinking rationally. It's fascinating and a bit of, uh, there's irony to that because you as the detective have to apply rational thinking to irrational acts in order right. to get to the bottom of them. Oh, absolutely, yeah. 
but I tried to encourage the families because they would kind of cling to you for a long time after that. And that was kind of my mantra. I don't know where I learned it or if I made it up or I just used it a lot and I still do. What did you begin to do with the district attorney? What was your role there? Just invest investigations, but because of my background, I focused, I did some white collar, but it's mostly homicide investigations. Were you, was it there that you uh, became involved in the Timothy McVeigh? No. Because I know that was Oklahoma, but. I left law enforcement in the district attorney's office and I, I bought a small process serving firm from a woman in Steamboat Springs where I live. I lived in Steamboat, which was kind of the center of the district and it also allowed me to ski a lot, which I did and run. Those were kind of my releases. And uh, and how old are you at this point? When I left, I was probably 40 or 41, 41 probably. So you're already starting to feel some of the stuff bubbling up. Yeah. Did that determine your leaving? Yeah, pretty much. And I went with my wife and another couple to Nepal, and uh, we trekked for a number of weeks and went to Thailand, the beaches in Thailand, and but I can honestly say my time in Nepal was, to this day, was probably the most peaceful time in my life. I'm glad you got to do that. Mm. When you left, when so you took on the you took on the process serving. Well, that, and that was just to have a business. Is that bail bond stuff, right? No, it's serving like subpoenas. Oh, and, warrants and things? Yeah. Yeah, similar okay. To that. I had a bail bondsman on the show. Oh, lovely. Yeah, I, I, sure I know a few. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's great. I, I didn't know if that they were no, in the same family no, or what. Well, no. Uh, this is where, uh, say, you sue somebody and then you hire a process server to go give them the papers, you know. Mm -hmm. You tape I, it to the Frisbee and then go to the park and throw the Frisbee yeah, out yeah, of it. Uh, <laughs> That's what they do it in the movies. I, did, I didn't do much of it myself. And <laughs> you put it in the pizza box. <laughs> eventually, the word wreck actually rather quickly, the word got out in Denver that I was out of my, home, my own. And several of the defense attorneys who would come up from Denver, particularly if it was a major crime, uh, who used to cross-examine me on the stand and give me a hard time. Now they were calling me to help them on their, defend their cases. The first homicide I did as a private, what we call legal investigators, I, uh, was two kids killed a highway patrol one. And the most difficult, I was fresh out of law enforcement, and here I am, they call it going to the dark side. And it was a little difficult, but not wasn't that bad. How do you, did you only get on the stand with people that you thought were innocent or did you have to be defense regardless of your own personal beliefs? 
Well, I tried, and it's probably totally impossible, but I tried not to let my personal beliefs into the job because you're working with people from all races, all religions, all... I don't mean by judgmental by their race, color, creed, or sexual orientation. I mean by you look at the evidence and think, oh, for sure, Billy killed Bonnie. Sure, I would testify. Uh, that was part of my job. I did. A lot, I enjoy testifying. But I you were testifying for defense. No. Oh. Back when I was in law enforcement. Oh, I see. Got it. We would arrest somebody would build a case mm -hmm. and then I would end up in court along with the lab people and other witnesses uh, testifying for the prosecution. But when you went to the dark side? You don't testify as much. I see. Uh, every now and then, but not as much. That can get tricky, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Especially if you have a long history of knowing things. Well, when you're doing defense work, uh, there's a confidentiality issue because you're working as the agent of the attorney so the attorney client privilege extends to you too so it's very seldom sometimes in a motions hearing or something I might testify but not very often mm. how long were you doing that for I still am oh you're still on that uh, okay well, not with that particular because you own your own company well, when you when you left the district attorney, I meant I meant how long did you? Oh, I got that? this little office above a bar in Steamboat, and uh, before long I had an office in Denver. And back then you could buy tickets for the airplane and books. You didn't have to go through security. You just walk out, hand them the coupon, and get on. This Continental Airlines plane, you know, and go to Denver, and you, I could go at 6 a.m. and a lot of times be on the last flight home and not have to spend the night. Eventually, that got old, and I, I would spend two or three days down there. And you would investigate for the defense. defense. For defense attorneys, you know. I think I got confused somewhere in all of that. Yeah, well, there's a kind of a, yeah, it's kind of a great, you're essentially doing the same job, but. Uh, for the other team. Well, see, I try to look at, and I tell people to this day, I'm not a, a client's advocate. That's the lawyer's job. Most, I would say, 70% of the news that I bring back to the attorney or my employees is bad news, but the attorney has to hear that so they don't get ambushed in court. I mean, these people will lie to you all the time, and their alibi, the worst, the fastest way to get convicted is a false alibi. So you have to and the attorney has to know if his client's a liar, and many times there are. And then he has to deal, I mean, he can deal with it. You know, there's various legal strategies, but I'm generally not a part of that, you know. Do you think that it happens then that, I've always wondered this, if I murdered somebody and I'm being, and I swear I didn't murder anybody, and my lawyer is, is there to defend me, if I say to my lawyer, I totally murdered somebody, 
they still have to or do you do totally they, confidential but they they still have to behave as if you didn't and right phew, that's gotta be so insane that reminds me of the movie the devil's advocate did yeah. you ever see that movie yeah al pacino makes a good yeah, devil yeah <laughs> You were a part of three very high-profile cases. Uh, may we talk about those? So I mentioned already briefly Timothy McVeigh. So we have Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma bomber. We have uh, the John Benet Ramsey case, and we have um, Eric Harris of Columbine. Well, those are the ones that were kind of, of national the notoriety. Big, the big ones. There sure. were some in the state that made big news in the city and state. But of Denver? Colorado and Denver, but... Is there one in particular that you call to mind? The Chuck E. Cheese murders. Uh, this fellow was uh, an ex-employee. He went in and executed the manager. It was after, I think it was after hours. And two other people, two other employees. And... Uh, It was a big, probably one of the first, it wasn't really a mass shooting, but shooting three people. Now it's nothing. Back then it was a big deal, you know. This was probably in the late 80s. I, I try to forget a lot of this, but yeah. uh, he was out of control as a client back then. And he had one of the best attorneys, in this, defense attorneys in the state he was out of control and uh, until last year I had not seen him and, until they drug him out of the courtroom after the judge had sentenced him to death. The judge came up before the sentencing in the hallway behind the courtroom uh, and said, Ellis, am I about to commit sin? And that kind of stunned me. Because he's sentencing someone to death. How did you get involved with the Timothy McVeigh case? You met him? Oh, yeah. You're in Colorado. How do you go from Colorado to Oklahoma? Well, I worked on his appeal. I didn't work on the original case. Now, I hired some people who had worked on, um, what's the other guy's name? Oh. McVeigh's partner? Yeah. You know, I don't remember. Anyway, that worked on his team with Michael Tiger. Isn't that wild that we don't remember yeah, that guy's I name? I try not to. Uh, I was in Seattle, I think it was Christmas or Thanksgiving, and I got a call from this attorney who I was a fairly high-profile attorney in Colorado, and he had just been appointed uh, by Judge Mache to uh, represent Timothy McVeigh on appeal. And when you're doing an investigation on an appeal, you essentially, I mean, you don't have a fresh crime scene. Uh, you don't have, uh, witnesses are kind of dated, although his case went pretty quickly. Uh, you essentially reinvestigate the case. In other words, was the prosecution really able to prove the case and or was his defense attorney deficient in his practice and how he handled the case? And that's how a lot of those, particularly in death penalty cases, 
that goes on a lot. Um, yeah, the appeals process happens a lot, a lot. Appeal, and but I mean, there's always seems like in so many of them there's allegations of uh, poor work on the attorney's part, and that may or might may not be true. I've seen it both ways. But obviously, he did not get his appeal because he was put to death. Well, he he pulled his appeals against his attorney's request. I mean, I, me and my staff were out in, o in Oklahoma quite a bit because that's where his original attorney was from. And I met a lot of people involved in the case um, originally. What was he like? Well, I first saw him when I was actually down at what we call Admax, but it's this federal super Supermax down in Florence, Colorado. And uh, I was in one booth with an attorney on another case, or visiting booths, but you can see. And McVeigh was in the next booth with his attorney, who I ended up later working for as part of the appeal, appellate team. But uh, at one point, I remember this attorney beating on the window and saying, are you listening to us? And uh, my attorney said, fuck you, I don't care about him, you know. <laughs> it's kind of crazy, but... So I, at that time, I didn't know I'd ever be involved with him. And then I got a call. I was in Seattle, like I said, for Thanksgiving or Christmas. I have a sister there, and his attorney said, will you work on it? And I said, sure. I mean, there again, I didn't have much time to think. Hmm. I first started seeing McVeigh when he was at the at Supermax in Florence, Colorado, and then he was eventually transferred to Death Row in Terre Haute, and I would fly back there hmm, every two or three weeks, maybe, uh, either with an attorney or often by myself, just to meet with him. So I, I got to know him fairly well. What'd you think? Well, there's an age that an old pathologist taught me when I started in homicide. And he said, before I start every autopsy, I remind myself this is one day some mother's newborn baby. And those words have kind of served me well. Particularly in dealing with criminals, as I do now, who've done terrible things. The day they were born, they weren't formed this way. We, society, formed them somehow. Unless there's an obvious you know, brain trauma or something like that. And uh, I used that with McVeigh. I didn't approve of what he did. Uh, he didn't, you know, he... We didn't talk a lot about Oklahoma City, uh, about the bombing itself, because he pretty quickly, he knew he didn't want to die in prison. And he knew that's where, if he didn't, gets the death penalty, that's where he was going to be. Someone was going to kill him. No, they, they did. Uh, 
Well, no, that he would could they oh, you mean theoretically like, life oh, without that's what you're saying. the possibility? Because I, I know some some people like Dahmer's they get killed in prison. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. What's his name? Oh, wait, King might have. Did he get killed in prison or did he get the? Oh, it's that uh, Whitey Bulger. Oh okay, yeah. There you go. That old mafia yeah. guy or that's whatever. Right. Um, Epstein maybe. Yeah, that's a suicide. <laughs> you think he's suicide? Yeah, yeah. I don't. Yeah. I mean, I don't know much. the ins and outs of it, but from what I read it, I mean, that happens every day across the country. In prison? Almost. In prisons, local jails, county jails. Suicide had, is high rate? Of I wouldn't say it's high, but it's not uncommon. Interesting. So to make Epstein's a big deal, I mean, the attorney general, I've had two clients kill themselves in jail. And the United States Attorney General never really got involved. Okay, let's get back to Timothy McVeigh. We talked a little bit earlier off mic. Firstly, I'm curious why it is you think that he didn't talk about Oklahoma much. And secondly, I think it's commendable that you are able to see humanity, see the human in the monster. It's very easy to put our monsters in these particular places because that's the monster on the human. But as you said, it doesn't take necessarily a whole lot to shape a monster right. out of a human. Right. And the, the biggest thing, I think, that the biggest um, fallacy, I suppose, is that we go along thinking there's not a monster in us. That is just well, sleeping, you know, in a way, yeah. it's yeah. a sleeping no. giant. Uh, I don't think I knew some of the people from who knew him and I don't think anybody saw something like this coming I mean he came back from Iraq I think wasn't it when I was meeting with him generally and particularly towards the end he was more fascinated by the media attention that was being paid to him uh, Gore Vidal would, had visited him in prison I was president when Ed Bradley of 60 Minutes or 60 Minutes or some one of those shows, I think it was 60 Minutes, you were inter there? interviewed him mm. with his attorney's permission. I, I think that's the narcissism coming through because he, he kind of got charged up by all the attention. There were reporters that followed that story for years. It was their soul. Did he have remorse? I'm fascinated by the idea of that. Um, I I don't recall seeing any. Yeah. I think I would remember. I don't recall seeing any either in any of the things that I saw, but you obviously had privy that. Well, unlike the public's persona of him, which is generally that picture where they're taking him out of the jail and he's got a flat jacket on and he's kind of looking straight ahead, no expression. He was a pretty animated guy, and he was considerate. He he would always ask about my staff. How are they doing? Uh, and he preferred the death penalty to life in prison. That's what he wanted. Absolutely, he pulled his appeals. And uh, one of the harder things I had to do was. They sent me to tell his father that he was dropping his appeals and he was going to be executed. And his father, who was a great guy, uh, 
It was a snowy night in Buff in a suburb of Buffalo, New York. And he says, in this little house kind of out in the country. I go in. I don't know if he anticipated, I think he probably anticipated why I was coming. But I said, uh, Bill, you know, Tim is dropping his appeals and he's going to be executed. And he said, uh, you know, Ellis, I love my son, but I believe in the death penalty. Would you like a cocktail? Or I think he called it a highball, but, you know, which I did, but I waited until I got back to the hotel. I wasn't going to be drinking with McVeigh's father. You know? That's a little weird. <laughs> Do you think that he, and again, this is a conjecture, you're not Timothy McVeigh, but do you think it was fear of life in prison or the idea of martyrdom by death penalty that appealed to him more? You know, I think I got to know the warden at Terre Haute reasonably well. He went on to become the director of Bureau of Prisons, but once they decided they were going to execute him, then we got more involved with the prison. And oddly enough, the people at the prison really liked McVeigh, the, the, the correctional officers. He was easy. He would give them advice on, in his own weird way on security. Uh, he didn't give them any trouble. They rotated. They had to rotate the ones that had been with him the longest out the week before his execution. It's military. There's discipline there. There's an understanding. The, I interviewed somebody on the show, uh, Adam, in the first year, and he had served time in prison. He'd also uh, been in the military and, you know, did his, his time there, and he said it's not that different, the two. No, it's real structured. Yeah, so that's a lot to take in. Um, the worst thing that McVeigh... I, on the day of his execution, the worst, in my opinion, and I think it's shared by many who knew him and or were involved in the case, the worst thing that the warden could have said that morning was, Tim, we're not going to execute you. We're going to put you away, lock you up, throw the key away. No more attorneys, no more journalists, no more Ellis's coming to see you that'll be then your life. And that would have mortified him. I talked to him about 30 minutes before his execution. It's fascinating to think, again, you getting to see the more human side of the monster. But I still saw the monster. Yeah, I mean, I separated them. I Absolutely. separated them. I but, still do. But I think it's important to, to, to recognize that, that there's a very fine line sometimes within a person. Right, exactly. You're exactly right. Or at least, I mean, I'm no forensic psychiatrist, but that's my lay opinion, as are probably better than lay. But uh, I've seen good people do bad things. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> The agreement with the government in lieu of an autopsy on his body, which they generally do, which I find ironic since they just killed him. Uh, uh, they agreed not to do an autopsy because people were trying to get parts of his body. and. Um, 
so the agreement was that I would go that morning to prison and meet with him. It was very brief, just to be sure he hadn't been beaten or anything like that prior, you know, prior to his execution. I don't remember what I exactly said. I think I said, Tim, are you okay? You ready to go or something? No, you know, probably something kind of callous, but um, he didn't seem, he seemed solemn, but not real nervous. And uh, the next time I saw him, he was dead. About 45 minutes later. I would think that they would at least want to look at his brain. I, th I think that that's the rationale and they do on a lot of them. That day, there were people, I, f I finally found a funeral home in Terre Haute that would cremate him. And uh, somehow the media figured out which funeral home, because most of them turned me down or turned the attorneys down. And this one funeral home said, yeah, well, you know. And while they were cremating him, I was just, me and one of my employees were just kind of hanging around and people, I don't remember if it's the funeral home, but anyway, there were calls, I think it was at the funeral home or mortuary, people were offering money for like hair or something so they could prove he was dead. Celebrity of the macabre. The, exactly, and the ironic thing is my colleague who was a young woman about 27 or 28 was with me and we got him cremated and drove back to Indianapolis and she put him in her backpack and uh, we got on the plane the next morning. I was in first class because I'm so tall and uh, she was in coach and she ended up sitting next to a reporter and the reporter asked her, you know, started chatting her up and told her that he'd been covering the McVeigh execution and that there were rumors that his body or him alive had been flown out of the country, similar to the Epstein, you know. And what this reporter didn't know, I don't know who he was, that his McVeigh's ashes were right in, under this seat in front of him. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> I had to laugh about that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, many times in this job, you have to laugh to keep from crying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you have a dark sense of humor, and it comes across as callous. No, I mean, I, I often think of you know the comic, right? The comics generally have very dark past. Robin Williams. Yeah. Exactly. Because if you don't laugh, you will yep. burst into tears and flames and, you know, sh shake off the mortal coil. How does one... Well, I'm trying to think of how to ask this. The difference between somebody like a Timothy McVeigh, a grown man, and then switch gears to an Eric Harris, a child, a Columbine, a... a well, I never knew Harris. Uh, you knew his parents. I was out in California when this happened, and I was visiting another death, soon-to-be death penalty client who was about to be extradited back to California, I mean, to Colorado. 
and when the deputies, I was leaving, the deputies was going down the elevator and they said, did you hear what happened in Colorado? I said, no. He said, there was a big school shooting. So I went out to my car where my pager was and it was full. It was my employees. And at that time, all my employees were women, much younger than me. And, you know, I get a lot of jokes about it, but they're very excellent and still are. The attorney for, when, when they first got the call, the attorney for the family did not know if Eric was dead or not. Jennifer, uh, the investigator eventually was able to contact the coroner or somebody in law enforcement and determined that he was dead. So they took his parents and uh, I got off the plane and went directly to the hotel where they put the parents up and it was in my name with my credit card or company credit card. And I remember I walked in and, and the mother was laying on this big bed, curled up in the fetal position, sobbing. The father, who was a former pilot, uh, came up to me and said some things that I just can't say. And uh, so we ended up, there was rumors that they were going to be criminally charged for allowing, you know, the firearms, firearms that yeah. kind of stuff. There sure. was a lot of, uh, that was the first big school shooting. And they were some of the nicest people I ever met. They had done everything they could. They knew he was troubled. They had done everything they could. The, one of the first people to get a lawyer in his circle was his psychiatrist who lawyered up. So I couldn't even talk to him. It's interesting, when I was in high school, I knew kids like him, that personality. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what it is about now versus then that is the tipping point that this is happening so much. Well, unfortunately, I, I mean, I think there's a, it's, it's like a snowball rolling downhill and Columbine may have started it. I mean, and mass, shoot, mass shootings are yeah. not uncommon these days. And do you think that is, it's a copycat type situation or is there? I think, well, it's not quite that simple, but I think there's, in my opinion, uh, element to that. Yeah, element to that. We John also, Douglas would be the person I asked uh, about that. Yeah, John Douglas for sure. Profiler extraordinaire. Uh, and again, the celebrity of the macabre. I think that these people are, they become their own Bonnie and Clyde's or, you know, we, yeah. we put their pictures all over the papers and we say their names over and over again. And I know serial killers really enjoy that kind of limelight. I'm not sure that Harris and Klebo had any examples to follow, but I think I, I, I have to believe that in some way they started what is coming today. They were the tipping point. But I say that, and I also tell you that to this day, his parents are some of the nicest people I've met, and I was 
my staff and I were around them for uh, probably close to a year. And I do think that the the public, the the public opinion, what is it, the court of public opinion, uh, looks to the parents and says, "What did you do? What did you do that created again this monster?" Well, they got accused, you know, of not knowing he had guns. Well, how many parents in a suburb go into crawl space under their house unless there's a plumbing leak? Uh, I'll go on a limb and say parents don't know anything about their teenage kids, period. End of story. Well, I no think matter it's more how, apparent now. Yeah, than, no matter how much they think they know, mm -hmm, they don't yeah. know. I mean, this was before the internet, really. Or, you know, it was as, the as, of as it. accessible yeah. as it is now. Sure, and sure. And, you know, the... Uh, I kept his ashes and McVeigh's sitting next to each other in my locker for a long time. And I think somebody got McVeigh's first and somebody got Harris's. But they were kind of close in time. I forget, I forget whether I did those together or when whether there was an overlap. When somebody commits a heinous crime like that or any uh, capital crime, do their last wishes get carried out? Like if if um, a Klebold or a Harris or a McVeigh say, I want my ashes scattered here, there, or the other, does yeah, that happen? Yeah, I don't happen? think those people think that. They're not, they're not thinking that far mm -hmm. ahead. So what and happens? It, so when you say somebody took it, what does that mean? I didn't want to know, and I don't. I see. Got it. There were rumors that someone was going to spread them on the Oklahoma City Memorial and that kind of stuff. That seems weird. Well, but that's the kind of... I mean, all these conspiracy theorists, I had an office with, I think, 13 people, and we had a whole building, and these conspiracy theorists would walk into the building to the point that we had to get a robbery alarm, not a burglar alarm, but a robbery alarm. And none of them, it turns out, were pretty benign, but the police, the Denver police, were concerned enough to come advise, came to me, because I was gone a lot, and my employees were there pretty much by themselves. I believe in some conspiracies because they turn out to be true, and but a lot of it, I feel like human beings need an answer. Answer. Because exactly. they can't wrap their brain around the fact that somebody would blow up dozens of people, or a kid would go kill a bunch of other kids, or it makes no sense. And so they come up with these fantastical... The fact is, some people are just sick or uh evil if evil is a thing i don't know i don't know I, i'm not that perceptive yeah <clears throat> but it, i think that is what i i am aware of your time and, and you've no, given me so much but um i would like to talk about i know you can't talk about the particulars for an open case which i assume the ramsey case is still it open is, yeah. um is there anything that you can well it is a case that has fascinated everyone. And still does. For a, if, I still probably five or six times a year either get emails or phone calls from people, women wanting to turn in their ex or estranged husband as a suspect. or I've gotten them from nursing homes in Florida. Um, I, got, I remember once I got a tape it was called the Ode to John Bonet from a, some old boy in a nursing home in Florida. And he uh, 
want me to have John Ramsey pay to have it published or, you know, produced however you do it. I, I had a four-door cabinet full of correspondence from all over the world. Everyone trying to solve it. Yeah, it brings out... That, that case really brought out the worst in people. It was a child. A child that looked like an adult. All intents well, you know, I understood that better than most. Uh, because in the South, that's kind of prevalent. Mm -hmm. To this day, they still have beauty pageants and people buy the franchise for a little miss Brentwood or something like that and the people pay and their kids get in it and they get a charge out of it. Mm -hmm. um, well, people are horrified by the fact that uh, Jean Benet looked like that and yet the shows that have come on since her death, the Tiara shows, you know, on the one hand there's this, oh my God, on the other hand these are huge hit shows. Do you know what I'm saying? We That weird fascination yeah. with things. And it continues to do to this day and it amps up like on the 5th the 10th the 15th and this last year I think it was the 20th anniversary of her death it, it peaks again mm -hmm. and some producer will have a show uh, and invite doctors and stuff to try to rehash it why do you think it's been so difficult to solve a case like that it's always my opinion that, that the scene was not handled properly by the police uh, particularly the police detective who is a great person but she just made a mess and uh, what, what did that make a difference I don't know but I know that's a, that's a major problem with it uh, do you think that in, a, in an era where there is the CSI, where there is all this pageantry of, of gadgets and gizmos to help solve crime, that, because crimes were solved back when that stuff didn't exist, right, yeah. so does that actually become its own block in some cases? Or in a case what like that, saying? I'm saying that even the if there was a mess of the crime scene that, that Back in the day, people used to walk through crime scenes and, you know, people would pick things up and nobody well, knew about DNA and all that. That's what happened here. I mean, John John actually found the body. The mm -hmm. detective let him go searching, mm -hmm. which on many levels was wrong, wrong to him to have to find her because I never knew her. I saw the pictures and they, they were horrible, much more than the public understands. And it wasn't fair to John, no matter what people think of him, um, for the police to cut him loose in the house to search for his daughter. That's not what you do. I, I don't think that one's going to get solved. I don't know. Yeah. DNA evidence now is, I keep, every day I open the Yahoo or the CNN or whatever and another person has has been uh, picked up for 20-year-old crimes, 30-year-old crimes. It's extraordinary. Well, a lot of that today, that technology wasn't used back when JonBenet was killed. And uh, there was DNA and there was... DNA recovered there. 
back then you didn't have these huge banks of DNA samples. Now everyone that goes into prison gets a DNA sample. Everyone in the military, uh, I mean, they're everywhere. Uh, 23andMe has my DNA yeah, sample. Yeah, right. Uh, I always wanted to get my father's DNA done while he was still alive so he could realize that he may have some African-American blood in him because <laughs> he was an old Southerner. But um, I don't know if it made a difference or not, but the DNA, now a lot of them in the past few years, this has been the familial DNA, and there's a lot of controversy over rights to privacy and that sort of thing. But I feel like I, in fact, I know I am okay with somebody looking at my DNA if it means catching a, a murderer or a rapist. Yeah. I have no problem with that whatsoever. No, I don't either. But that's me. I mean, I understand other people have issues with that right to privacy and things, but I'm all, take it, take all you want. If it catches yeah. the person that does the bad thing, I'm, you know, I'm okay with that. How does one, it's one thing to deal with like, Timothy McVeigh's parents, their father, and a whole other thing to deal with a child's parents. How do you do that? It's very difficult. Uh, I first met them when they got off a plane in uh, an airport in Denver, and I knew them for a couple of years. And uh, right after they came back from Atlanta was when I got involved in the case. Or they came back, maybe it was involved a little bit before then, but uh, Burke, uh, who's been drugged through the mud uh, with various theories. Uh, I call them armchair theories, but uh, I remember taking him out in the street and playing with these electric cars that he'd gotten for Christmas just to get him away from what was going on inside the house. So. That's the brother. The brother, For yeah. those who don't know. I mean, he was 10 or something like that. Mm. Yeah. What is your plan now? You still have Armistead Investigations. I've All scaled right. down now. I have one employee who I'm very proud of. She's 23 years old, deals with very difficult cases, a lot of sexual assaults. I think the Me Too movement, I don't necessarily disagree with it, but I think it's given people license to, at times, make false accusations, particularly teenagers. I mean, I see kids now are charged criminally for shit I did in high school, you know. I mean, we've got one where a kid allegedly touches this girl's butt walking down the hallway. Well, I mean, give me a break. How many? It doesn't make it right, but, you know, that's... And they, they want to register as a sex offender. Well, yeah, the pendulum is swinging wildly. Way, 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 way over in, in that area. And it, it, most of them, high percentage of them are legit. Absolutely. But, uh, but there's always going to be there's people There's going to be that sure. 20 or 25 percent. And it's super unfortunate because of that making the real ones seem 
not true because right. and I, I mean if it's a two-edged I were, sword yeah yeah if i collect up 10 of my girlfriends eight of them have been sexually assaulted mm -hmm. it is i mean i think about that i remember being at a high school party and drinking and uh I, it was the only time in my life i ever blacked out from alcohol we had stolen wine from my parents and mixed it with soda pop or grape yeah. juice i don't even remember what but it was unholy drinking it and being so drunk and then passing out in one of the rooms and waking up in a pitch black room and a boy kissing me and i was madly in love with this boy named peter who didn't know i existed and apparently this other boy michael had, had a, a i don't know whatever thing for me but i woke up and i was like what's going on who is this and he said he said it's peter and so mm. i was like what and my drunk self was like oh my god yeah. you know and i started kissing back and then my brain came back online and i went uh -uh, you mm. know and I, you know all the other faculties started coming back yeah. shoved him off and ran out the door now all these years later would i go back and say let's throw that do you know what i mean exactly. it, it is, it, and now he's a grown man he has children daughters all that stuff does he remember that i doubt it um did it shape me not really didn't shape me but i remember it so it's, it's but it's also the person and the people and the where and the how and the that and everyone has their own story see that's why most of my one of the reasons i did uh the one full-time employee I have is she's young because so many of these allegations arise out of high school. I don't know their, I don't know how to talk to a high schooler. Uh, witnesses, uh, I never knew what, what is it, WhatsApp or mm. that thing where they send pictures, what's the name of that? Uh, the, uh, Twitter does it, WhatsApp, no. uh, yeah, Snapchat. Yeah, what, what apps? Or Snapchat. I yeah. used to Snapchat. Snapchat. Used a lot. Sure. And but there were kids in my high school that were raped, date raped. Oh, sure. And uh, and in college as well. No, it um, happens all the time. That's just at my age. It's like oh, that's just part of you're growing up as a woman. The things that we have, the thing that women back then, it was part of your. Experience. Yeah, how screwed up is that? Yeah, that's it so, is screwed it's up. so screwed up to think like, oh, and all of my girlfriends have similar stories. It's like, oh, yep, yeah, that's just part of what we went through. Anymore, having language like, oh, that's just the thing that we experienced. It's not acceptable language. It's holy shit that happened. Oh my gosh, let's do something about that. Right. Yeah, it's just a different time. And the communication now. Uh, the Snapchat, I think that's the one that goes away pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. But these kids are sending nude pictures back and forth. And we have become so numb I've, and so desensitized that now it just, and everything is a commodity. I've dealt with parents and I couldn't say anything because they're not the client. Or I really could, you know, they're witnesses, but I, if you could only see what your daughter was Snapchatting to this dude. <laughs> uh, yeah, it gets complicated. I, and nothing is uh, 
uh, th these things last forever. I mean, people just screenshot anything, you know? Well, I really on Snapchat, that's about the only way you can, if you're lucky, uh, that it goes texting, away. which they've kind of learned not to do, we can download it. I feel though that somewhere there's a, a room where there's a computer that does log all this stuff. I mean, once it happens, it, there's still an, uh, a footprint of it somewhere. I don't know, you'd have to ask Courtney. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I I would love to get a computer forensics person on the show. I, I know think, a good one. Oh, you do? Oh, yeah. well, maybe we can talk. Cause I lectures. Think, uh, I think that would be incredibly fascinating. Ellis. This has been enlightening and intense. Thank you for your time. Humans, huh? Woo. <laughs> Thanks, Ellis. Sure. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review Hey Human on iTunes. Thanks. Bye.